Hello all you cats, dogs, and other friends in the animal kingdom. This is Pat Brennan welcoming you once again to Beyond Believers, your definitive Elvis Costello fan podcast. This is episode three about side two of the first album of Elvis Costello's discography, My Aim is True. I like that 3-2-1 synchronicity, and so should you. On this episode, we don't say today's episode, because who the heck knows when you'll be listening to this, my friend, the blogger, bagpiper, and proud Ohioan Aaron Bradis and I complete our coverage of My Aim is True, in the course of which we cover a few topics, such as who would the song Less Than Zero be written about today? What is secretly the sweetest song on the album? What did Elvis Costello learn or not learn from the career of Elvis Presley? Did Elvis Costello create emo music? What is Cutcore? Which is the true last song of the truest version of the album? And does that even matter? And of course, further concept album theories abound. Please note about 18 minutes and 45 seconds into the conversation, there is a dramatic change in audio. Not of quality, just a difference, as we recorded this episode over two two two-hour sessions, and sadly, Nick Lowe was not available to produce it. So we ask that you please ride with it. And that's that for now. Thank you so much for listening and carrying on despite the occasional hiccup. Enjoy. All right, track seven, my favorite track on the album. I would say it's equally a classic in my book. I couldn't entirely tell you what the story is with, but it's it's red shoes. The angels want to wear my red shoes. Sister was a guy rusted. You know the angels want to wear my red shoes, but when they told me that the side of the party, that's when I knew that I could not refuse. And I won't get any older now. The angels want to wear my red shoes. I don't know. Do you think this is a He's going to live forever because the angels want to wear his red shoes and he lets them wear his his red his shoes. Sho- his, his red shoes. Is, do you think there's a Wizard of Oz reference in there? I yeah, I mean, I think so. Something I mean, this like... is a guy who this is a guy who probably stays up late at night watching a lot of TV and has probably seen the Wizard of Oz more than once. Yeah. I mean, I guess. Because, I mean, I that, just don't... that, like, Wizard of Oz is all about somebody going to, like, a fantasy world, essentially. Yeah, and, yeah. And in and a way, I'm he... escaping my humdrum existence yeah. by letting the angels wear my red shoes, and now I'm not going to get any older. Yeah, yeah. Peter Pan. I mean, you could think about that, too. Like, you know, yeah. boys never aging. Like... Yeah, exactly. And it has such, like, a shiny feel to it the guys in the oh, it's band, very visual yeah yeah the guys who uh, are in the band said like oh it's that one that sounds like the birds <laughs> you know like roger mcguinn's like 12 string like jangle guitar i feel like also this is a great song to be like so there's this guy elvis costello i'm a big fan of like this would be if I was like making like a twelve song playlist for somebody. Oh, this like would a, be track one, like a greatest hits. If if you were to curate a greatest hits, if album. if I was to curate a greatest hits album for somebody like, for instance, I made that want that like late period Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan playlist yeah. for you. That like this would be track one for like a twelve track Costello compilation. Like if I okay. had to include, I mean, it would be this and and probably Allison, but but Red Shoes to start, I feel like would it's so. 
so hooky. It's also like, I mean, it, it is, a, I guess the story of it too is that he's I like. Do, I, I do he, like the he, lyrics in this. Oh, it's it's one of the best. I mean, the line, the killer line is. Oh, I used to be disgusted. Now I try to be but I, I will say that as, as anybody who has tried and failed in the dating game, whatever side, you know, whoever you're going after, we've all tried to be yeah. amused when we were just like so disgusted. And honestly, oh. the interesting thing about it is I've, I've always said that it's like me or anybody else who, you know, is struggling to find somebody that it's like, it's the moment that you try to be amused. It's the moment where you're no longer disgusted by striking out yeah. that you will meet the right person. Or in this yeah. case, angels who want to wear your shoes, your red shoes. Which makes me think like, is this like a groupie track potentially? Is this about like- Interesting. Or is this, I mean, there's a lot of biblical stuff throughout this whole album as true, well. True, he is a Catholic. He's an Irish Catholic. Declan Patrick McManus is his wow. his real name. I know he beats he beats me for the most Irish named person um, ever. Yeah, I think like, but since their wings got have got a Patrick got... and a and a Mick in his name, it's just it's unbeatable. <laughs> There's Anyways. also I think about um, a little bit of like angel turns to demon because like, but yeah. their wings have got rusted. Rust is like an orangeish red color. You know, the Ooh. angels want to wear my red shoes, so it's like almost like. Again, maybe portraying a woman or women as like this temptation to him that's going to get him. Also, I think about the desperation of this person too. Like I used to be disgusted. Well, now I try to be amused. Like you're talking about dating. Like there's yeah. a moment too where you'll try to yeah. force something because you're like, oh God, yeah. Yeah, you're like, Ugh. gosh, this used to be bad. It's too but I'm real. Like, yeah. But on multiple levels, I think this song is working. And I think it's an exciting return to kind of like that form that I think you appreciate in this album. It's like from Sneaky Feelings, just kind of that light, kind yeah. of standard ballad into this, which is like, now the layers come back out again. Yeah, I mean, I think so. And I mean, the other one, the just absolutely, like, you know, again, as like a single teenager listening to this album, you know, uh, I said, Oh, I said I'm so happy I could die. She said right there with another guy. I always like cite that as like it, it's so like it feels like a John Hughes movie. It does, yes. Yeah. This song has such a and John Hughes, big Elvis Costello fan. Oh wow, big Elvis Costello. It's it, like Elvis Costello and the Beatles are kind of big John Hughes, like his muse, like big big influencers. He there are you know, Molly Ringwald when he died wrote that really interesting New Yorker, like sort of almost obit for him but kind of essay on what it was like being one of his like sort of muses or part of his crew she put it almost like like one of his like one of his kids yeah and how one of the things that he would always do is like take them record shopping oh and buy them like all these albums like you haven't heard revolver like i'm buying you revolver you need to hear you need to hear Plastic Ono Band. Like, you need to hear My Aim is True. Like, yeah. So, I'm not... Yeah, the fact that you cite John Hughes, real, like, yeah, this song could be, like, a song from a John drop Hughes Drop Dead, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Drop, drop Dead maybe that, with maybe, another guy. Maybe that isn't a John... Maybe, I, maybe yeah. I am not... I'm not super... 
familiar with John Hughes. The one, the my one deep. Well, I have two deep connections to John Hughes. One is that my he's your my uncle. Wife, he's your uncle. <laughs> my dead uncle John. <laughs> he made a movie or two, um, but uh, he's from the same area of suburban Chicago that my wife is from. Oh, whoa! So a lot of. Her high school is in Ferris Bueller and oh, in like Uncle Buck and oh, like, like Buck. neighborhoods. The neighborhoods that he his stuff, a lot of his the movies shot in are very close to where she lived um, on like North Shore. So um, and then the other connection is is I have a very close friend of mine whose uncle is Jake Ryan from Sixteen Candles. That's the main heartthrob? That's the, wow. yeah, that's the happy birthday. Happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible. Maybe, the things you learn. Maybe we can get a cameo from him. Maybe. And he'll say yeah. it. We'll, we'll, pay, we'll pay money <laughs> happy, for it. Happy birthday, Beyond Believers. <laughs> Our birthday's coming up. Maybe I can get him to do that. All right, anyways, next track, Less Than Zero. Everything means less than zero. Hit. I love this track musically i think it's awesome i think it's even though it's not fast it's might actually top welcome to the working week for being the most punky sounding track on it lyrically i think it's the it's the song that's aged it's aged the worst yeah it's Dro- not, yeah dropping nazi references is well it not dropping rigid? i don't have any problems with that i, I don't like Ooh, I, watch yourself there uh, i love a good nazi watch. reference no, what I mean is, is like, okay, so as you said, it, I, we talked about it a little bit earlier. Oswald Mosley was president of the British Union of Fascists. If you know, like, the famous Mitford sisters from, which were like these five or six sisters from this aristocratic family, they were really famous. All of them did a bunch of really cool stuff. Well, some not so cool stuff. Like, one of the sisters married Oswald Mosley. That's and not, was like, that's not cool. For the record, that's not chill. <laughs> for the record, it's not, it's not a thing, some, a cool a cool person does it's just not not, <laughs> not bro <laughs> um, anyways point being oswald the fact is is that you know we don't have i guess like charles Lindbergh would be like the u.s equivalent as somebody who was like an outspoken supporter of nazi germany Oof. uh yeah yeah so it's like didn't he's he, kind of he got lost on a plane didn't he Charles Lindbergh. Who am I no, thinking No, that's of? Amelia Earhart. Wasn't he's Lindbergh like a pilot? had his baby stolen. Okay, that's Lindbergh it. That's baby. it. That's okay, it. Okay, so Lindbergh baby and Amelia Earhart. Yeah, no, Amelia Earhart disappeared. Yeah, while, and Lindbergh baby also flew a plane and disappeared. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Next. Anyway, <laughs> anyways, it, it is that thing like you see. I've seen like a lot of comedians do or something where they take this person who they hate for like political reasons and they extrapolate it to not only do I hate this person politically, but I bet he's a pervert behind closed doors. And this is basically like the the plot of this is that Oswald Mosley makes gay porno movies with underage children and murders them. And you're just like... Oh, 
Okay, you know, the fact that you'd just be like, Oswald Mosley, he's a fascist and he sucks. That's yeah. enough of like, yeah. you got enough material to work with there. But it reminds me a little bit of, you know, Bill Hicks? Um, Big comedian from yeah, the 90s. Yeah. Like, like the kind of like the comedian's comedian. He has bits about like Rush Limbaugh go on and on to the point that there's some of the most obscene, disgusting stuff you've like ever heard, ever. That awful, you know, and again, like, doing it because Limbaugh is like the center of this culture war that is attacked, you know, free speech and art and, and culture and everything like that. And so like, he's like, okay, you, you really, you hate this. I'm going to, I'm going to take it to the, like, the it's, it's nadir, level, like yeah. absolute, absolute most disgusting thing ever. This almost, this feels a bit like that. And it's just kind of like, well, okay. Um, I, really I appreciate that he at least gives, he gives us the, such a punk you know, turn a phrase. Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. I mean, that becomes for those that don't know, that ends up becoming the title of Brett Easton Ellis's first novel, the guy who wrote American Psycho. Oh wow. And everything. Less than zero is his is the name of his first novel. He actually he when he performs it live, he changes the lyrics. They call it the Dallas version, and it's about the kennedy assassination oswald yeah yeah they, he calls Le, it oswald yeah lee harvey, for, okay. for lee harvey and all that but i it's not that much great better i just love for me i just i love the music of it and i just i love that chorus Yeah. <laughs> 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 it's like this is all these creepy fucking verses and then <laughs> I, I I do like the chorus on this too, the turn up the TV, no one is listening. Uh we'll suspect even your mother won't detect it. Yeah, I feel yeah, like yeah. that like the propaganda of it all and the fact that stuff like this does influence people. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And I mean this like, song's yeah, inspired like young men like this character who's well the song's inspired by by seeing him on a late night tv interview again like costello up late watching tv seeing that he's like just completely unrepentant and being like this you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna write like, a piece of I'm shit gonna write, yeah. i'm gonna write a, like, an evil song about this evil bastard like so it's like in that way i'm like it i, I get it i understand it i just it has a little this is one where i'm like it sh he shows his age like this is yeah. a twenty-two-year-old. It's it's a little immature, but I it's think it's a little immature. Th thank you. Yeah. I feel like I talked for five minutes waxing about this, uh, and you just be like, "It's a little bit immature." Yeah, it 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 it, it revels just interrupt in it. me next time. I'm just <laughs> saying, just running my. If 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 you were to rewrite this and instead of Oswald use someone from contemporary. Oh, I mean, it would be on, here on on three. Let's say at the same time. <laughs> Everything One. is Ben Shapiro. Hey, oh, I would have said Alex Jones. <laughs> oh, Alex Jones. Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. Alex and his sister are uh, doing it yeah. again. Yeah, I did it. Uh, <laughs> I did it. <laughs> I did it with my sister. <laughs> and now, uh, buy my supplements. <laughs> yeah. And after that, we had a bone broth. It was delicious. Mmm, <laughs> <laughs> that's good. <laughs> I did it. Yeah, I did it. <laughs> Uh, uh yeah yeah i feel like he would be great one of the recently mitch mcconnell would be good mitch mcconnell would be yeah yeah i mean yeah i would expect yeah the talking old, about like the old american turtle i yeah. was gonna say like, the, the least like 
sensual human being oh, like, alive. I, I don't like so. I feel like for that, Mitch McConnell might be perfect for that. <laughs> uh, yeah, he is not not at all sensual. I feel no. like someone like Trump, you might find Mitch. something like that lip. The lips might you might. Put I mean, from that. I think I think Trump might be perfect for less than zero. Actually, with the with the P tape and yeah, and possible. He has yeah. a P tape. Well, that was the thing, though. They, they thought the Russian, there was like this Russian P tape <laughs> that they thought British spies had when he went over to like accept some deal to build like Trump Moscow or some shit like that. It, it has yet to service, but it is a, it's like an urban legend that yeah. there is a, there is a P tape. Wow. You heard it here first. <laughs> All right. Pay it back. Oh, the no. The fact that I. Mystery dance. Oh, wait. Mystery dance is next. Why don't you tell me about the mystery dance? I want to know about the mystery dance. Why don't you show me? Because I tried and I tried and I'm still just a fight. I can't do it anymore and I'm not satisfied. I've, I've cited th two songs now as like the punkiest thing on the album. Uh, I, <laughs> is this one the punkiest maybe, song? <laughs> Say it. Maybe, maybe Mystery Dance is the punkiest thing on the album. If only because it's, he said, he cites it's the chords to Jailhouse Rock. Don't know. It's, Dun, dun. Oh, uh, Raj Factor for less than oh. zero, like five. But like, yeah, I, I mean, still want to even give it credit for that. So I guess three out of five. Yeah, we can abstain. We can graciously we can abstain. abstain. I, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I'm glad you're here to graciously abstain yeah. from giving more fuel to that. All right. But, then, uh, can I take a minute? I need to take my Alex Jones supplements. Yeah. Why don't we take a quick break? We'll so we're on Mystery Dance. Uh, you've taken your supplements. Yeah. You were immediately then rushed to urgent care. Yeah, yeah, um, I was, yeah, I was evacuated or lift back or whatever <laughs> before your body evacuated. Yeah. Oh yeah. There we go. This is now the third time I've said this is the punkiest track on the album. It's actually this is the first song that Costello ever recorded for Stiff Records, the world famous punk label of London, home of the Damned. Reckless Eric, Andrew, and the Blockheads. He recorded this as a demo for somebody else to sing. He was hoping to become a, a house songwriter for them, but they decided to keep him on, and once they heard his demo of Mystery Dance, they decided to have him cut an album. So this is... I'm not sure if it's re-recorded or not. It might just be the original demo, but I'd say this is the punkiest thing on the album, even though I've said that three times, <laughs> because... He said as much that he like deliberately played the guitar downstroke so that it didn't he didn't want it to swing at all the way something yeah. like Pay It Back or Miracle Man or Red Shoes or even Less Than Zero has like some swing to it. He didn't want this one to swing at all. The piano playing on it, nobody was good enough to play like the piano, like the sliding down the keys, so they did that with a drumstick. Oh, So I feel like it's the lack of musicianship meeting the that rawness, the rawness of it that I feel like it's the punkiest thing on the album. It's definitely to me, this is the most rockabilly. Oh, definitely. That we see. This is For where sure. it's the throwback. Yeah, this is where I think when I looked at the album cover, this is where this is what I thought the album would sound like. Yeah, based yeah, on yeah, yeah how exactly. He's dressed mm -hmm. the, like kind of Buddy Holly-esque glasses yeah. at first glance. Definitely and also, like, the pose. 
Mm -hmm. suppose like it's like a chuck berry almost like or um yeah you look at that it was like the 18 greatest hits chuck berry that that one thing and he's yeah he's he's like got that like have i got a song for you we should talk about that cover because it is it is a really iconic cover i would say most of at least like the first like Costello always cares a lot about his like the the cover art for his album. Seems like his presentation is something that is he's like a full package. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting because as the career goes on, he takes more and more of like a direct hand in this. But this this is very much one where it's like they put the glasses on him, the tortoise shell glasses, <laughs> and like put them in front of the the camera and we're just like do like stupid things. Yeah. He he used to do the knock he has like the kind of knock kneed stance that he oh, yeah. did a, a lot and they used to he has a joke in his memoir where he goes to the hotel and he's checking in and they're like, If you're him, do the funny leg thing. And it, it, of course, it says in tiny letters over and over again, Elvis is king. Elvis is king. And we should say yeah. that this album came out July 22nd, 1977. And I believe it's August. I think. 12th or roughly three weeks after this that Elvis Presley dies. So, Dang. yeah, yeah. What a what a great <laughs> publicity yeah. windfall he got <laughs> over the the death of uh of elvis hero to most yeah and then not not chuck d though uh <laughs> <laughs> what was the sandwich he ate elvis he was i believe it, it was banana peanut butter and maybe bacon i think something like that yeah yeah love it i think i could do like two bites of that and then i would just probably be like i'm done I need some uh, Alex Jones oh, we actually, broth. We got a surprise for you. Joe, <laughs> oh, Joe, get in here. <laughs> Joe's bringing in the sandwich. Oh, man. But, so, yeah, I did not know that about the album cover because when I see it on streaming, as you know, as you can see right now, it's yeah. small. It's just mm-hmm. like checkered. Yeah. Um, and then when you showed me a close-up, I was like, oh. Yep, Elvis is king. Like. Yeah, definitely, like, again, like spoiling for a fight. It's a more, again, like the kind of... The punkish elements of it are they're a little more subtle than than for instance his bandmates like the damned like if you look at the cover of damned 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 it's like they're like covered in vaseline and like they look like they're about to throw up on like whoever's in front like taking the picture (laughs) so can we talk about some of is elvis costello a big fan of Elvis Presley. I know it's probably a dumb question, but like where? Well, it's interesting. So like what is the relationship between those two? And well, as far as the stage stage name, his real name is Declan Patrick McManus, which I think takes the cake for the most Irish fucking name that has ever existed. Very puts Irish. Patrick Michael Brennan to shame. <laughs> he originally performed as as uh, Costello is his mother's maiden name, so he used to perform as like D Costello or DP Costello, like Declan Patrick Costello. And then somebody decided to go just with Elvis as like a stage name. Obviously in like relation to Presley. Oh, for I'm, sure. Yeah, for sure. Point, and to be like, yeah. we've got our own Elvis and, yeah. and it, it very much, very much like a very simplistic, not entirely like well thought out. Like this will get us headlines. Like stiff <laughs> records is very much, like I remember like my favorite film critic, Mark Kermode, who's on he was on BBC, he's now on Sony, 
And he talked about how he went to Stiff Records, like, because they had a record shop, like, in the, like, f- lobby. It was, like, yeah. it was, like, the front desk slash it's record like Ca- store. Capital Records has, I thought. It was like a yeah, 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 yeah. It's the same kind of thing. Exactly. And they were probably took it from Capital. And the guy, like, he bought um, Reckless Eric, who's on Stiff Records, has that song, Whole Wide World. I'll go the whole wide world. That was his, like, one good, good single and he Kermo talks about like he went to buy it and the guy who sold like who happened to be pulling a shift was reckless eric so he like do you want me to sign it he's like you sign it he's like yeah it's my record (laughs) um and so like it's a very diy like in-house kind of thing but so yeah it's very very low rent very very punk very diy and so they kind of i think it was just literally like a publicity scam as far as him going for presley 77 like it's about as the least cool as you could be you know he recorded a country a couple of country-ish sounding songs for this album and they were taken off because they were like this is just like steel guitar in 1977 is not the cool thing to do of course like Three years later, he'll record an album of country covers in Nashville, but not not right now. So he, they cite different things like the bass line in Pump It Up that Bruce Thomas plays is very much a takeoff of the bass line of, of Burnin' Love. And they definitely like cite his stuff. He later will tour and record with James Burton, who is Elvis's big guitar player on all of a lot of like basically everything kind of post Sun Records is is James Burton. And he's this legendary guitar player. Father of Timmy Burton. Of Tim Burton. Yes. yes. The, the famous film director. Yes. That's not true. And uh, <laughs> brother of Richard Burton. I don't know who <laughs> in, Richard Burton In Xanadu. He's a Classic Cousin Hollywood. of LeBar Burton? Yeah. <laughs> well, it is the South, so it's a family of I don't have a joke there. No, that's that. okay. It's okay. We'll <laughs> Maybe we will. Maybe we will. But suffice it to say, he blame goes it, on blame to, it on the cane. He goes blame it on Kane. He does go on to play with a lot of people from I think it's called like the TCB band was Elvis's big uh big like band that played with him for the comeback special in 68 or 69 and all of his stuff. So he definitely has a lot of reverence for a lot of his stuff, but he's also really wary of kind of the cautionary tales of somebody like Elvis, who is such a genuine talent, but lets things like producers and management and stuff get in his way. So I would say he views him as much as a cautionary tale as anything. So character he's trying to become maybe. Well, I wouldn't say that he's trying to become or or, or a character no. he's putting on. I mean, definitely there is a there. So there is a point later on in his career, probably around like the early to mid eighties, where he stops wearing the tortoiseshell glasses. He, he puts contacts. on. But, <laughs> well, there actually is. There actually is a period. There are a couple albums. I believe it's um maybe King of America, which comes out in eighty five. He I think he might not have any glasses on the cover of that. Some other ones too. And he very much from mid to late eighties, especially once he stops playing with the attractions, 
ditches a lot of the image that he had for sure. Which I feel like once and you're... And starts writing songs like in the credits, they're they're like McManus instead of Costello. Oh. So just things like that. So there definitely is like some creative shifts here and there to try to get out from under the, the like notion. so difficult to be an artist that's prominent for so long. I mean, that's why... I mean, we've talked about Bob Dylan quite a bit. Yeah. You just like... Sh- you're going to want to shed everything at some point just to keep it fresh, yeah. I would think. Absolutely. Unless you want to spend the rest of your life doing tours, rehashes yeah, 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 yeah. of, of well, everything. Exactly. And I will say that the further you go on and having seen Costello in concert so many times, he very much tries to take after the Dylan mode of reinventing his songs all the time to the point where the average person, like, like your roommate Joe, who went to go see him, is like, yeah. I don't know what song he is playing. It's kind of like the ultimate, like, beyond, like, a jam band. Reinventing the material, like, so differently. And Costello always does that, particularly depending on whatever style of music he's in, whether it's bluegrass or it's New Orleans, big bandish, or it's country, bluesy stuff. He'll reinvent his songs at the drop of a hat to try to find new things to do with them. So I think very much that kind of getting stuck in a particular thing. I mean, first of all, his stylistic influences are all all over the place. So he's going to be jumping around like that. But in particular, I think as careers go, he looks to not get stuck, not get pigeonholed too quick. He always described his relationship with record labels as like an independent filmmaker with a studio. He's like, I'll go to a pro, go with them with my project. If they decide they want to do my project, then we'll do it. Yeah. But like, he's not, he's, he doesn't have those kind of long term label relationships that somebody like Bob Dylan with Columbia had or, or other people like that. So, if for no other reason than a lot of those labels in the time of his career kicked off a lot of art, like when Columbia kicked off Johnny Cash and, uh, like Miles Davis and that was like kind of Cash's downfall until Rick Rubin picked him up yeah, and started doing so those yeah, yeah, yeah wild to think about exactly yeah. so like to think like you kick you kick Johnny Cash off your label like he's a legend not in the late 80s he wasn't yeah. so I think if there is a relation between Elvis Costello and Elvis Presley it's the deep reverence for where the music comes from the courage to in- reinterpret things, but I think he's also a cautionary tale into not not let yourself get stuck. No, not so fly too close to the sun. Ex- well, fly too close. If you're gonna fly close to the sun, do it. Well, no, pair. fly fly close to the sun. <laughs> fly close to the sun. Don't accept like the dark, air conditioned Vegas theater for ten years. Yeah. You know, I think it's like, go for it, fall on your face. And, you know, he's made so much different music that you could very easily say he's may have fallen on his face. As he says, he's got lots of different fans who are into lots of different eras of his music. So I would say go with the feeling, be authentic, but don't get stuck Yeah, too long. I would say those are the things, that's a really good question. I'd say those are the things that he takes from presley if he takes anything and fuck and fu- well yeah i want to talk about last dance is all oh about i was gonna say mystery virgin- dance is or, all yeah, about Ver- it is literally virginity. i really appreciate it though it's kind of sweet though in the sense that it's like 
it's, it's like, I don't know what to do. Yeah, like, yeah. I don't know when. The- well, I remember when the lights went out. And I was trying to make it look like it was never in doubt. She thought that I knew and I thought that she knew. So both of us were willing, but we didn't know how to do it. Why don't you tell me about them? Yeah, it is kind what of What is it? Yeah, um, you can see those pictures in any magazines, but what's the use of looking if you don't know what they mean? I've exactly. tried and I've tried and I'm still mystified. Yeah, I mean, you gotta respect the guy and, and what he's going through, the character in this song. You know, you uh, you want to be a, especially, I mean, again, thinking of this as a song written by a 21-year-old. Like, you you know, you want to be, you want to be satisfactory in a manner of speaking. So I, I, I don't really even think this song's that raunchy. There's no, no there's no. no double entendres in it at all. Yeah, if it's anything, it's kind of fun. Yeah, yeah. it kind of takes you back. I mean, for me as a listener, to just like that time in your life where you're, even outside of sex, you're just trying new things for the first time, and sure. you're stumbling through it all, but happily yep. stumbling. Yeah, and that's what even the whole like being the whole pulse of this song. It's just like it's because mm-hmm. for a lot of us, we obviously didn't live in the '50s. Uh, we look back in these in these halcyon days. Yeah. And it's so fun to just explore things, to learn things. Oh, yeah. And so many people learn that sense of, they lose that sense of learning and yearning for new information. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And it's it's nostalgia for that, like, pain of being, like, you want, when you're young, you want so desperately to have, like, knowledge and experience, whether it's in the bedroom or otherwise. And, you know, it's like you want it so badly. I think of it like all the elaborate ways I figured out how to sneak alcohol into my dorm in college and then I turned 21 and it's like you just don't have to do it anymore. Yeah, you lose you kind of lose that you sense lose of danger. You lose a little sense of danger and adventure and all that stuff, but also just like the pain of being like, you know, you almost miss as much the times it didn't work out as the times yeah. it did. So I just I look at Mystery Dance as, as very much well, a song where it's like it's about oh god that pain. Well, that's um, all the stories come the stories come from the failures. You know, oh yeah the stories that when you don't you, learn from it yeah, w- yeah when you meet your friends 10 years from when you all graduated and you're you know yep regaling all these stories that's what you talk about is like the, the fuck-ups you yeah, know you talk about that's the failures time for sure. you yeah all right so next track is pay it back Don't talk about raunch factor of mystery dance. No, I'd put it. I put it low. I put it a, a pleasant one and a half. I would even say go so far as to say one. It's so oh. uh, it's so innocent. Like it's a, just so a flaccid one. Ah, well, I mean <laughs> eager. So yeah, I guess that's maybe true, a one true, and a half. True. Maybe one and a half is appropriate. All right, okay. fair enough. Fair enough. All right, so on to pay it back. Again, it's like it's that pub rock trio of Miracle Man sneaky feelings and pay it back they're all sort of interchangeable and again they give like another tempo like a kind of more swinging in between before we get to like the penultimate song Mm -hmm. and so you know they're light it's breezy yeah But pay it back again. Nice, you know. It's got a few good lyrics here and there. And then they told me I could be somebody if I didn't let so much get my way. And I tried so hard just to be myself, but I 
to keep it from being like boring. And I like that one of these days I'm going to pay it back, pay it back one of these days. Like it's, it's nice. Yeah. It's very, it sounds very much more so like a song that again, that backup band Clover would have played kind of country rockish. It feels like a movie or a song you'd hear in a road trip movie. Yes. When you're first hitting the road. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I don't know if it's like, if it's, is it the, it just, um, the lightness of it. Yeah. Is it the upstrum? That's like, I'm not, I'm not a musician. Unfortunately. I'm not either. So I'm trying to get didn't... some, a couple of musicians on this future guest simply because <laughs> I don't know anything about, about like band dynamics, but I couldn't tell you about chords, but yeah, there is that, that he's like, yeah. he's that kind of like, like on the beat. Yeah. That definitely helps. It's also one of the more piano driven songs, which is, yeah. you know, kind of a thing that, that helps put along. And again, it's nice. It's, it's a good yeah. one. I don't, I don't mind when it comes on, but it's not, it's not going to change the world or incite conversation. Unlike our next song. I'm not angry. I'm not angry. Now, you were talking earlier about Incel Core. I think <laughs> and, if there yeah. is a song that could be considered Incel Core, perhaps it's incel this. Cut yeah. Core. Cut Core, yeah. Cut Core. That's Cuckold Core for, for those uh, not in the... <laughs> not to offend our cuck listeners. Not to offend our cuck listeners. You keep on cucking. Um... <laughs> Life's a garden, cuck it. <laughs> this could be considered a candidate. The one thing I took away from it was there is something to be said that while I can't necessarily applaud the content of a song like as a model, as model behavior, songs should not necessarily be model behavior, whether they are or they aren't for us. Yeah, I know. It might not, yeah. In, in California, they recently, didn't they ban using lyrics in trials criminal trials recently i think they did yeah 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 like, that is like true last week or two weeks ago because mm -hmm. i know a lot just to you know mention like the drill scene that you're seeing in like of course it like started in chicago and then it's like in new york you have a lot of like young people talking about very brutal crimes they're committing which are just strictly fiction yeah alex cameron do you listen to alex cameron i've heard of just yeah yeah a I've lot heard of little scumbags dirtbags oh yeah just yeah you know these awful oh, kind yeah. of like lowly protagonists and for th sure. they make for wonderful listens i mean because that opens up the question about entertainment what are you looking for are you looking for real life are you looking for fantasy yeah everyone's different mm -hmm. and i think there is something to say that well early on in interviews and press with costello he said all my songs are only about two things revenge and guilt and this song is about revenge and a little bit of guilt. Perhaps he's hoping for, he's demanding guilt of somebody else. The the woman he's writing, he's almost writing this song too. But I would also say there is something to be said that if there is a kernel of truth in this song, better you write a song about it than write a screed all over somebody's page or yeah. hack their tiktok account or like <laughs> share like stalk nude or, yeah. photos or stalk or do anything like that for a 22 year old to write a song like this 
the kind of feeling when you see somebody who dumped you, like, making out at a bar or going home with somebody else. You're like, if you're imaginative, this is where your mind goes. Yeah, I think it's a very, jealousy is a very natural reaction to things. And I think if anyone told you they were never jealous, I would find that very hard to believe. I don't trust them. (laughs) I don't, I just straight up do not trust them. Don't know them, don't vouch for them. No, don't, don't know them. Don't vouch for him. I mean, this, the way that he writes about this too is kind of that wit that he has. I really like the line, I hear you calling his name, I hear the stutter of ignition. It just, I feel like that's such a strong line mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. the start of like, kind of him seeing his, I guess hearing his person move on. Yeah. Is like, it's just yeah. so heartbreaking. But then like the hook of like, I'm not angry, I'm not angry anymore, which is obviously not. Yeah, clearly it's, not. It's I mean, like, that's the other thing is the chorus is a lie. Yeah, like it's, it's clearly <laughs> when you're with your boys and you're like, I'm not mad about that. Yeah, I never, not. I never cared about her. I yeah, am. I'm, I'm over it. I'm yeah. over that. I'm over that one, man. Yeah, and I think re, like hearing a line like this, the stutter, the ignition, that makes me think this is an intelligent person writing. Take it with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think of the song was just like, fuck you, I hate you. Like, yeah. And there are songs that are like that. Absolutely. But sometimes, I mean, you look at like Third Wave Emo, when that hits like mall, mall core and all that stuff, yeah. you see people like um, uh, Taking Back Sunday. They yes. write some stuff that's like really questionable and like not, it's on the nose how they feel. It's not yes. laced in a metaphor. Yeah. And I think that type of stuff, you kind of see, speaking to people growing up, I feel like you could see them being affected by that and the way that some people are, are like oh, yeah. nowadays being affected by is it andrew tate see that yep this generation is like one of many awful awful humans mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah 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 i mean this is almost like his third wave emo song the closest yeah. that he would get to that <laughs> if i started like an emo band in high school like so many of my friends did I would have, I would have pushed very hardly for us to cover this song. We gotta cover I'm Not Angry. We gotta cover I'm Not Angry. I feel like it's perfect. So I also think musically it's so strong. That And then just build, 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 like the... I got this camera click, click, clicking in my head. I got you talking. Yeah, I love that yeah. whisper is so great. Again, the chorus is lying. He's seething. He's not letting any of this out. Um, also contradicts the whole title of the album, too. My aim is true. My aim is true, yeah. He's a very muddy character. Yeah, 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 yeah. I feel like when I think, when I imagine this song, I imagine it as just like an internal monologue. Guy's probably a little bit drunk. Yeah, oh, yeah. Like coming I feel like back he's a little a bit drunk for every song. Yeah. Oh, pretty much, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know... Again, it's like if you're by yourself in 1977, you don't have a cell phone. You don't have anybody you can call or anything like that. You're no. just like walking home. You can't tweet it or out. Or you're taking yeah. the... Tre- exactly. And it's just kind of in there and it's seething. Also, there's the line in it. This is an ongoing thing that Costello is going to write about, which is about like the shallowness and the emptiness of, you know, the surface beauty and glamour and everything like that. Yeah. He is perpetually 
peeking behind the curtain, tearing down, tearing it down and be like, look at this. Look at all this like ridiculous shit. Um, look at all this terrible stuff that's happening. This is like, that's like the lifeblood of, that is, you'll yeah. see him write this song over and over and over again and very with variations he, throughout his career. He's not, and I mean this with all due respect, he's not a stud per se. No. Yeah, he is not somebody who, he's not like Elvis Presley. He no. went on stage and oozed sex. Yeah, he's kind yeah, of yeah. like a geeky. He very, yeah, and very um, much plays into that. And and it's kind <laughs> of like, you know, he, he's convinced that he's not an attractive person and that he is where he is because of skill, not because of looks or anything like that. Again, he thought he was going to be a songwriter, a house songwriter for Stiff Records. Yeah, he kind of was because aiming. nobody on a record cover looks like me. Yeah. You know, I need I need to wear my glasses and like a flannel okay. shirt and a tie. So he's not like super He's coming um, from the working class too. Whereas Yeah, I mean, he's he's not like, like he doesn't have a working Columbia. class background. And so he never tries to be working class or or try to do that thing that so many people do like somebody I love Joe Strummer who very much tried you know did that kind of working class accent and everything like that even though he went to prep school and was a you know Costello didn't go to prep school but he didn't go to like but he wasn't you know sent to work in a factory or anything yeah. like that you know he had like a decent job he didn't make a lot of money but i did he, read that he was a data entry yeah he, he worked at elizabeth arden he yeah. worked in the computer and yeah, as he describes it a computer that couldn't do anything that your phone can do <laughs> and he would be like he would stay after and be like oh the computer's not working today or something and so he would then use that time to like leave or go right or just stay there at night and write songs and things like that there's a lot of this period we've written. It's like we've talked about how so many songs are about dreaming. And there's a lot of if you read his memoir about like, for instance, the first time Mystery Dance, just his like acoustic demo of it was played on the radio and how he like turned off all the lights in the kitchen and everybody was asleep. And he like listened to the radio like to hear his song played for the first time or like how he would write songs on an acoustic guitar and he'd have to mute the strings because his wife and his baby son were asleep oh, in the next room. So he was, a, he, you know, Did... he was a dad and he was like, and when Stiff took him on, he was like, I'm going to do this, but you have to like pay me enough money that yeah. I can quit my job and do this. Like, So at, at this point, he was married with a child? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. He okay. was married with a, with a young kid. That's interesting to see because, I mean, generally, I feel like nowadays, artists we see that become fathers, it like impacts their writing immediately yeah you know like we so and so has a kid their next albums would be about fatherhood so and so has a kid their next albums would be about what their pregnancy was like like yeah all, all of that is it's just interesting that like that's not where he went with no this at, not at, at all not at all he I mean, doesn't it's, it's not sexy by any means no the only song i can think in his entire discography that is explicitly about being a parent is not until 2008 Quite and this while. is after this first marriage ended and he is married to the jazz pianist and singer diana crawl and he writes a song called my three sons you know take off on the the old 50s tv show my three sons and it's the one song that he really that's really vulnerable and very much like he says 
because his father also had three sons with a second marriage after his father divorced his mom. And so it's yeah. like, I, I am, you know, I am the son of like a father with three sons and I'm the proud father of my three sons. But otherwise he does not talk explicitly about his family. So does he have any albums that are just positive reflection? It's or... not the thing he goes for. Yeah. He always says he's like, I kind of go for the melancholy disposition. Those are the songs I like singing. Yeah. Those are the songs that... There are, I mean, there is a lot of light humor. There are a few love songs he's written that are, I think, are are beautiful and are amongst, like, some of the best. But they are few and far between. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> anyways, Shut moving up. on the next tracks, Waiting for the End of the World. Because Watching the Detectives is, like, a bonus track. Well, it's interesting. In the U.S., Watching the Te- Detectives was released on the vinyl. In England, it's not. Okay. So well, watching the detectives was something that the ra- the record company put on. So waiting for the end of the world, I guess would be considered the last song. Is this Elvis's this vision? Like what what did he yeah. see? He's, he he yeah, so all of the Miami is true songs were cut in that like 11-hour period. Yep. And then afterwards for a follow-up single, he does watching the detectives so cuz this is still the album. era where singles are not on albums. Yeah. And then after that song was a hit, they yeah. threw it on. Yeah. And he was always like, that's not on it. In the same way, if you know his song, Radio, Radio, that's been slapped on as the last track of this year's model. And he's like, that is not the last track on that album. A lot of rappers do that nowadays with yeah. Spotify or the mm-hmm. streaming culture is they yeah. get a big hit. They tack it on to the end of their album. Exactly. Which also carries the streams, streams onto their new album. Sure, so then it sure. it charts really high immediately. Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, and so I think that's, well, yeah, and I feel like that has its origins in something like that. Oh, definitely, yeah. But, so Waiting for the End of the World is considered the original final track of the album. This used to be my favorite track on the album when I was a teenager. I really loved it just because of the the real propulsiveness of it. It sounds really modern to me. In hindsight now, it seems it's very like, to me, it strikes me actually as more of a throwback. It's very, it's very 60s Dylan-y. But I do love the, there's a thing that I love that this song does is that it, you know, when you build to the chorus, you know, they shut down. There's that other great part where it goes, uh, you may see them drowning in the clean out of reach he does this thing where it's like he pulls the tension tighter and tighter and it's like he throws the song up in the air 
almost like a drummer throwing sticks in the yeah. air and then catches it and brings it down. And that, that kind of tension, that rhythmic tension of the yeah. song, I feel like is one of the strongest things about it. And this is his collaging of just random like headlines and... Yeah, well, he was sort of inspired to write it by being on... He used to take the train because he, he didn't learn to drive a car until several years after this song because living in London... He didn't have to. He'd just take the train everywhere. I would love if this album was literally about his anxiety around driving a car. Like, like we're, overlo- <laughs> we're overlooking it, but it's really just... I'm a- Not Angry is really about road rage yeah. on the M1. And oh, yeah. uh, Pay It Back is about speeding tickets. Waiting for the end of the world's like rush hour. Rush, yeah. yes, exactly. But uh, it's about... I think he was inspired by the day after the Sex Pistols swore on television. Oh, yeah. And everybody was just so freaked out. So I think he was kind of inspired by that. But also, again, you talked so much about daydreaming and, like, dreaming big. And I feel like this is one of those songs. It's like the penultimate song. Yeah, where he's he's just, this is like, I am riding the train. I'm watching late night TV, like my mind wanders. I imagine these surreal scenes of like, what would happen if this, this uh, television celebrity came onto the train. Like, everybody is going crazy. Do you think you can make an argument that this whole album takes place in one person's mind on their way, on their commute to work? You could totally, if you were to frame it as a concept album, I think Costello would say like that's complete rubbish, but who cares? I think, yeah, that's fair enough. Welcome to the working week. Yeah, it's and like you end up like, waiting for the end of the world. Yeah, yeah. Like you're plopping down and then and the world is that first time you punch in so like the whole thing is his like waiting to get into work and just i trying like to it make sense of his day kind of almost like walter mitty ish like imagining yeah. all of these different things and he's like you know thinking about oswald mosley and yeah right. all of that all that stuff like, i could what, totally what happened this past week yeah that's a fascinating way to think about it i never uh i, I never considered it but you're bringing so many insights here man i I'm love trying. it i love it i'm trying to be a, a good Elvis costello fan <laughs> <laughs> trying very hard well it's 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 for a lot of folks it's not easy and it's understandably so but yeah i mean i i'm a huge fan i feel like raunch factor is pretty low on this one this one feels like also we're seeing the artist ascend this is i feel like he's not playing children's games on this one no i would say this one is one of my favorite ones if i if I had to choose mm-hmm. I mean, this one is yeah, def- yeah, yeah. Is definitely up there it's you know i i poo-pooed it a second ago but i think it it's growing on me as well yeah it really does it's also one of those it's one of the few songs of his that i i think i like the studio version that i've heard it play live a few times and he just they really kick up the tempo for it yeah, and I, I feel like it doesn't work that way it works as like this slow burn where it's you know you have that Boom. Yeah. that chorus that that what is like almost like the bridge between the verse to the chorus that yeah. like shut down the power all along the line like that yeah. dragging it out those lines i think it was way more effective than he usually kind of just does it as like a really fast like just kind of like, from the television crawl it's just kind of it's kind of like blown through it yeah it doesn't yeah it doesn't i don't think it's inspired yeah. when it's when the imposters uh his current band play it i i really like the way that clover plays it on this album and i would say it's definitely one of the album highlights along with red shoes um and allison 
for sure. I would say those yeah. are probably the big three from it. So should we talk watching the detectives? Yeah. She is watching the detectives. Ooh, he's so cute. She is watching the detectives. If we accept this as a track on this album, I mean, this is hands down. It's like an utter masterpiece. It, it was, uh, it was, in, so the song was inspired by, he says, he stayed up late chugging instant coffee and listening to the first Clash album and being really inspired in particular by the Clash's cover of the Junior Marvin song, Police and Thieves. Police and Thieves in the street. Oh, very like, reggae uh, influence. And reggae, reggae is so much bigger. Reggae and I, like the subgenres like ska and rock steady are so such a big part of the UK music from like the early 60s mm -hmm. through like well before Bob Marley comes along. So yeah, that reggae influence is huge with a lot of people and everybody's been growing up with it. 1967, you have the Desmond Decker song Israelites which is like is a number one song in the UK and in the US. And that really is kind of the one that breaks open the doors. And everybody who came of age in the 60s and were like teenagers then are now like in the punk era and combining that like you also get like the stony dub kind of feel. Uh, love dub. So yeah. yeah, absolutely. So you can listen to something like Blackboard Jungle from Lee Scratch Perry and hear yeah. that on this also. Like the drums to be really hot. There's that kind of that tension that do, 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 it's all there, and it's it's also just absolutely killer lyrics. Yeah, I think um, what I was trying to say earlier I was trying to access my notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For me, this is what made me realize like the someone potentially like tapping out the beat on my <laughs> on my water bottle right now as we record this i love that song so much just like seeing somebody seeing the like the mixture of like the horny young man becoming the cynical adult because mm -hmm. i think it, uh, it it mixes these kind of really intense lyrics with moments like mentioning blow you away with like the double entendre of that sure but at the same time it's also hitting notes that are like um let me see. Oh yeah, because the whole thing's about essentially some like maybe a murder. 
Like well, maybe... it's so it's so interesting. What I appreciate maybe about this like, song yeah. is that it poetically makes sense if it doesn't logically make sense the yeah. way like an Allison does. Yeah. This is like you're kind of going he described it almost as like like a movie where you're like going in and out of the story and you're observing, you're watching it, but then you're also participating in it. Yeah. And it's kind of like there may have been a murder. This girl is watching. Is the girl part of the investigation? But she's also watching the story of a girl who's murdered. But I think I like that. I don't yeah. want to know exactly what it is because it... It's kind of surreal. It kind of... For, very. For, for me, it almost feels Lynchian at times. Well, it's interesting you say that. So, so first of all, like the sound of this, like we talked about with like the hot drums and... And the really like staccato-y guitar is very, and like the very like forced groove, really it just the tension of it all is he really calls like this is, this is actual production. Before this was making records, this was producing. Like we have a deliberate sound we want to achieve yeah. as opposed to just the sound of people playing music in a room, playing yeah. this song. Also want to shout out the high the keyboard. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what I was about to say. So he recorded this song as the attractions were coming together. The attractions keyboard player Steve Naive actually plays on this track. So it's the first time that an attractions member, somebody who is still playing with Costello to this day, Steve wow. Naive, throws in those chords. And he's like a classically trained musician who's like playing in this like quasi punk band. And so he does all of those flavors. And he was like, I was like trying to do Bernard Herman. Hitchcock's composer yeah. on like a like no budget whatsoever like all I got is like a Vox Continental organ like guitar bass and drums and I want to make it to yeah. sound like as tense as this he's like I would have never been pretentious enough to say Bernard Herman I probably would have just said make it sound like Hitchcock like something like that so when you say Lynch you're like yeah yeah that kind of subterranean so spooky. spooky tension all that stuff yeah, yeah. very much so do you very feel like so. um just for your own personal opinion, that this is the better way to end the album. Interesting. I would say yes for two reasons. One, because I grew up with it being the end of the... The, mm -hmm. the My Aim is True that I got on CD, which is the Rhino reissue, which had the second disc of bonus tracks and all of his demos and stuff that mm -hmm. he recorded like in his bedroom. It ended with watching The Detectives. So that's the first reason. I just it just feels like for it to end with and I feel the same way about this year's model not ending with radio radio cuz it but that's another conversation yeah. for another time. <laughs> this also I feel like is so important because while it doesn't sound like this year's model exactly. This year's model is much more produced album and there is something I think that's really important in being like, this album is so much... Costello in an interview, he talks about when you leap forward, you start on your back foot. So if you're trying something new, you're always going back. Yeah. And My Aim is True is so much musically about like, this is what I've been listening to. I am taking these other people's tools and I am playing with them. And he will always do that, as every musician does. Yeah. Nothing is completely wholly original. Everything yeah. has to start from somewhere. It's all been done. But can you do it in an interesting way? And with watching the t detectives, it's almost like it's like the train has left the station. 
Yeah. He is beyond everything you... Watching the detectives is so beyond everything that's come before it, musically and sonically, that you are going to soar right into no action from on the first track on this year's model that is going to, like, kick your ass immediately. And it's no contest between no action versus Welcome to the Working Week. Like, it is, like, it would kick the shit out of Welcome to the Working Week. And I think that's, like, here's where we've been. This is where we're going. Yeah. And I also think, again, it's, it's, it takes all of that daydreaming that we've been talking about and that longing for stardom and it takes it to a more poetic, more abstract, I think more interesting level and a less literal level. Yeah. And it's such a leap forward, you know? I feel like for me, it really feels like like oh wow. This is this guy's this we're pl- it, yeah. we're, th- we're playing on a whole other level now. And I that's why I love for it to end with that because it kind of gives you it's it's much more low rent it's still kind of low rent the way the rest of my aim is true is but it's it's a huge leap forward for him as a writer i mean if i was to get a lyric tattooed it would be you think you're alone until you realize you're in it now there is here to stay love is here for everything call it it's the chest when it's past the legal limit someone's scratching at the How much better does it get? Where, than do, you, that? where do you get that tattooed? <laughs> <laughs> That's got to be the back or something. It's, it's got to be. It's it's lengthy. It's so got to be the forehead. Got to be the forehead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I mean, I just like that is. How much? Like phonetically, it sounds really good. Like it sounds simple yet kind of like. And it has. I mean, to me, it's. It's, got it's such a dirty word, but it's like it's it's so poetic and it yeah. means something. But even even if it doesn't mean something, it feels something. Yeah. A mood is one hundred percent completely communicated Definitely, to you. You yeah. feel that, and you know what it feels like, even if. I cannot literally sit down and tell you what yeah. that verse means. And why would you? Where's the fun in that? So yeah. that to me is so he's going to get that that's kind of where he's going and yeah. that's exciting. Yeah. And that's why I love as much as I love my aim is true and I I, I do I think I would have been disappointed a little bit by that original by that original album if it didn't have watching the detectives on it so interesting it might be like against canon or whatever but i i i go with it i go with it all the way every time it's such a i mean again also testament to the fact that much like mystery dance yeah he's he plays this every show i've never seen a show where he's never played where he hasn't played watching the detectives, even like a bluegrass version of it, where it's like, you know, he always, Alan Toussaint wrote horn parts for it so he could finally do like a full, like, 
version of it. He played it with a symphony orchestra and it sounds like it sounds like a like a one of those jazzy scores from like like one of those movies from like the early 60s yeah. where like you got somebody like Dave Brubeck to do a score for like a like a caper movie or something yeah. like you know almost like it's like the score to Ocean's 11 or something like that which again is very different from from this I don't know if I like it better necessarily but yeah. I it's cool as shit that that <laughs> song has stayed with him and that he keeps finding ways to do it and you know, they'll be very much... It's also a song that they can... They always stretch out on. Everybody usually gets a solo yeah. on watching The Detectives. I remember seeng them live, and Steve Naive did a uh, theremin solo with it, wow. where he's just waving his hand over it. It's like... Whoa, 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 yeah. whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, like, it was just... It was the coolest. Whenever... He, yeah, you get to, like... Like, this is the... This is, like, a show-off moment. A big show-stopping yeah. moment is whenever he plays watching The Detectives live. And whether it's 1978 or 2022, you know, I've seen, I saw the clips of the show in Anaheim that he did. And he, yeah. he played it and it's, it's awesome. It's always I, awesome. It's, I mean, it's, it's arguably top 10, if not top 20 songs for him. No doubt. Dang. Have you ever gotten emotional at one of his concerts? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. 100%. Because you kind of sound, it sounds like you've grown up with him. I have. And you've, I really have. There's been moments where you've grown as a person. He's probably released albums and grown as a person himself. Absolutely. There's some, some parallels there. There definitely is. There, There's two albums that come out kind of one after the other. In 2005 and 2006, there's The Delivery Man. And then there's The River in Reverse, which is the album he does with Alan Toussaint post-Katrina. And... There's a couple of songs that he does, you know, and he did them live that had very strong connotations with the Iraq war. Mm -hmm. And just, I mean, I was just thinking about it today because I was re-listening to that album, The Delivery Man, and thinking about like, you know, how Trump is chaos, but Bush and Cheney was like controlled terror. Oh, yeah. And it was calculated. how how powerful that was and how infuriating that was and how just like just like agonizing that was you know trump is it's like a horror show it's like a it's yeah, it's it's just chaos trump is checkers and cheney is chess oh my god and it's chess where you're just like every every you're just taking hits right and left he's like slaughtering you got the butt plug literally that, that, literally that, I that's mean, buzzing yes Okay. For, for people, Thank you, you. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> I do. I do indeed. But um, there's that. And then, you know, I mean, so a lot of, lot of great anti-war songs are written by him during that time. The Katrina thing is particularly tough. There's a song of his called The River in Reverse. The chorus being, wake me up with a slap or a kiss. Because I don't know how this could get much worse. What do we have to do to send the river in reverse? And, um, you know, there's there's this kind of just not resignation, but just this like, I'm so angry, but like, I'm so angry. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, to borrow yeah. a term from recovery. And there is, it's, I mean, if you hear that song, particularly if you can find a live version of it with what the TKO horns do on that. It is deeply moving stuff. 
I mean, Allison Live is deeply moving, yeah. especially, like I said, when he mixes it in with a bunch of soul songs. Again, he's got, there's a song called The Crooked Line, or This Crooked, is it the very, it's either This Crooked Line or, or, or The Crooked Line, which is a love song. That's one of the most amazing songs I've ever heard him play. So, yeah, yeah, I could go on, but I also feel like I, you know, I don't have to to do it that much so here i got well i got i got one like last question for yeah, you yeah yeah of course if elvis costello were to be here in this room and he were to say pat tell me what you think of my aim is true be level with me did i do well with this first album absolutely yeah absolutely because i feel like it accomplishes so many things one it is it is a show-off record and all great first albums should be look at me show off records once you look at him i feel like this album more than it takes costello a while to come back around to find the charm again with this album it's such a charming album it puts a smile on my face even like just the music of a song like like uh pay it back or like miracle man it's just mm. so like it reminds you of the power of what like four or five musicians in a room playing together on a groove can do. And I mean, thirdly, it's it stood the test of time. I think he I think he kills it. So yeah, absolutely. He says thank you, Pat. <laughs> <laughs> oh good and he, lord! And he says, you know what? My aim was always true. <laughs> I've always said that. All right. Well then. You have two options now, since you've asked me. Yeah. You can give this either a ranking from one to five, or you could give it a poetic ranking. And the poetic ranking is coming from Elvis Costello's song titles. So the five ones we have for poetic rankings would be Big Nothing, Useless Beauty, Almost Ideal, Ascension Day, or Beyond Belief. I would call this the Big Nothing. All right. Yeah, that's okay. how, I, how I'd rank it. Yeah? Yeah. I feel like it's a lot of... If I if I am, like, digesting this in the way that I kind of mentioned earlier, yeah. as, like, the commute, like, yeah. some of my best and I think most interesting ideas come from that commute. Mm-hmm. But once you get to work, it's like they didn't happen as you clock in. Mm-hmm. They kind um, of evaporate. Yeah. And like, Almost oh. like the way you wake up from a dream and you're yeah. like, oh, God, I can't remember that, but I have the feeling of what... Exactly. what that was so big, i mean big nothing is like the biggest compliment yeah yeah absolutely yeah and i will say as someone who this is like my first real deep dive i definitely will check out more of his albums i don't know if i will come back to this one a lot kind of based on what you're saying in regards to the developments of production and songwriting i think other ones mm -hmm. will will catch my eye but you know you never forget your first you never do <laughs> ah, the raunch factor strikes again. <laughs> the one thing I would touch on real quick as we kind of wrap up is how do you see this, not even necessarily ranking, but kind of in like the pantheon of, of like debut albums? Are there any debut albums here like that this reminds you of or 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 is like completely different from or Anyway, because we talked briefly at the beginning about the idea of like debut albums and, yeah. and what they mean and what their goals are. And I wanted to hear more from you about that. So this is, I don't know why I kept thinking of this album, but when I think of this as like a character study of almost maybe 
Costello writing an alternate ego, mm-hmm. I think of Tyler the Creator a lot. I think of Tyler the Creator's first mixtape, Bastard, that came out, where he acts as Wolf Haley, who's going through like a essentially like one long therapy session and just like letting out all these demons, saying some really fucked up shit. I mean, early Odd Future is like tot- would never be made today because it is so ghastly and like the imagery people some people call it horrorcore because it's so over the top talking about killing people talking about raping people like Mm -hmm. it's bad and wrong yeah but it's also a kid doing it who's just getting out all of these different intentions different feelings in a way that for them makes sense at the time and it feels like for elvis costello this made sense for him at the time um I mean, my favorite debut is definitely got to be, I think we talked about this, the, the XX's debut XX, but I don't feel yeah. like I can even compare the two because that's, to me, that's a mood album. Um, yeah. And another big one of mine is Joy Division's debut, Unknown Pleasures. Unknown Pleasures, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that one also Which again feels came like out, I think, at the same time or within. 79? Oh, is it 79 yeah. already? Okay, cool. Gotcha. So then it's, it's two years after this one. Sonically, I mean, that's light years ahead of. Like, yeah, it's true. you got Martin Hannett doing drugs and doing weird stuff. Oh, and... <laughs> I always, I just think of Andy Circus and Twenty Four Hour oh, Party yeah. people yep. playing. And what are you doing? I'm recording Silence. You're recording Silence? <laughs> no, I'm recording Tony Fucking Wilson. Yeah. yeah. Um. So it's interesting because I think for me, just those two as being some of my favorite debuts ever. Show you that for me, melody and tone and mood come into play. Mm. So I think this was a good exercise for me to have to embrace lyricism um, instead of just putting something on it, sounding to my ears like, you know, like the night, I guess. It's yeah, it's interesting because that is so much about both those albums are so much like mood and, and tone and everything. It's very interesting to compare. Like the first thing I thought of when you brought up on Unknown Pleasures is like the song on that album that always stops you in my tracks, which is She's Lost Control. Yeah. And like to compare She's Lost Control to like Allison. <laughs> it's like such a, such like a, you know, like. Like imagine those two is like personified eating lunch together. Like it's not, yeah. it's not going to happen. Oh, I listened to a great thing. There's a great podcast called My Favorite Album. And somebody was talking about a Costello album. And they were talking about like what Costello songs would be in conversation with each other and like which songs and you could do it like with the Beatles or yeah. like Joy, but like the idea of like all of like the 77 to 80, like British punk or post punk or art punk, whatever <laughs> artists like who, which songs are talking to each other, which songs are like at the opposite of the room, which songs are like having a fist fight, like in the pit, like <laughs> all that kind of stuff. But like, yeah, but it's, what's so interesting is like you think of the influences there and like in curtis is so was so infatuated with like jim morrison being that kind of this like poet who had this like incredibly sharp vision i mean say we could debate the merits of jim morrison's poetry for sure yeah but curtis kind of having this a definitive style and point of view and everything of writing and also like incredibly self-destructive but like chasing that the same way you chase a high he's chasing like a poetic you know like confusion in her eyes says it all she's lost control and like and but it's it's like it's totally different but it's also another kind of like laser focus the way costello would laser focus on 
these like yeah. hyper details like the fingers and the wedding cake. Alright. I I would also I also would give this a uh I would give it almost ideal would be my poetic ranking because I feel like it is aiming he's like, this is what I can do right now, but just wait what what's coming down the pike. So Hell yeah. All right. This has been Beyond Believers. I'm Pat. And I'm Aaron. Thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks for having me, Pat. Aw, dude, it was an absolute pleasure. And that was our coverage of My Aim is True. Thank you so much to my dear friend, blogger, and all-around awesome music fan, Aaron Bradis, for joining us on our maiden voyage today. His album of the year write-up on the band Anxious's debut album, Little Green House, will drop on the IndieHead subreddit on December 13th, 2022, and I suggest you check that out. I also suggest that you check out our next episode in which the poet, medium, and all-around visual artist M.R. Morrison will be joining us to discuss side one of this year's model second Elvis Costello album and a Stone Cold classic at that. Also, I wanted to take a moment to discuss something I feel that we overlooked during the episode. Amongst all of the heavy, catchy, and emotionally fraught songs on this album, I feel like the track Pay It Back got a bit overlooked. And as I've been editing editing this episode and going back through it, it's really grown on me. And I find real emotional resonance as a creative person. Whether it's in the first verse, I may be crazy, but I can't contemplate being trapped between the doctor and the magistrate. You know, as a creative person trying to pay the bills, I certainly relate to that. And then they told me I could be somebody in the second verse if I didn't let too much get in my way. And I tried so hard just to be myself, but I keep on fading away. And then the lights went out, I didn't know what to do. If I could fool myself, then maybe I'd fool you. I wouldn't say I was raised on romance. Let's not get stuck in the past. They told me everything was guaranteed. Somebody somewhere must have lied to me. All of these things, as a creative person, I relate to. And then you come to the chorus, which is one of these days I'm going to pay it back. Pay it back one of these days. I think you have to be a little crazy to have dreams, to see beyond where you're at. And I think this song is about having one foot in reality, one foot in your dreams, and how luck and favors are a lot of how you get ahead. Maybe even more than talent. And so to all those people you ask favors of, whether it's five bucks or to crash on their couch or to let you use their equipment or any other of the myriad favors that you do have to ask when you're trying to hustle and trying to make your dreams come true you end up saying one of these days i'm gonna pay it back pay it back one of these days you know i i dream of the day that i can have a tremendous amount of money in which I can repay all of the people who have helped me out. So for all of those out there who have, first of all, thank you. And second of all, 
One of these days I'm gonna pay it back, pay it back, one of these days. Sorry you had to listen to that. I probably owe you for that as well. And so as we fade out, I talked about how this album is about a person on the outside looking in. And I feel like this last song that we're going to close with is a great example of that. Costello said of his home demos that a lot of them were just too quiet to be heard. But I think this one, as soft and gentle as it is, likely recorded while his wife and son were sleeping in the other room, just as my wife and my child-to-be are sleeping in another room, speaks loud and clear. It's called Poison Moon, and I hope you enjoy this short excerpt. This is Pat Brennan, and I hope we meet again soon, between your ears. Cut loose in a nightmare, cast off in my dreams. If home is anywhere that I can hang my hat, then it's coming apart at the seams. My luck is hanging upside down, I try to hold on tight. But money's rolling out of town And love slips right out of sight And these bones, they don't look so good to me Jokers talk and they all disagree One day soon I will laugh right in the face of the poison moon one day soon I will laugh right in the face of the poison moon.